touch is the very first of our five senses to develop. So when we're in utero and we're little embryos growing in our mom's womb, the thing that we're getting touched by are all the fluids and all of the elements and all of the hormones and all of the things that are in those fluids. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper in how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while our guest, Myra Holtzman, is a licensed clinical social worker, she's not yours. So we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. That said, I want to welcome you to the show, owner and founder of Somatic Therapy Partners, a body-oriented somatic therapist specializing in helping people rebuild after adverse childhood, early childhood experiences. And I were talking before about the show about how we had done a somatic show about a month ago and this could build on it. But I also want to mention we had an ACE trauma show. We had the person from the ACE network on the show. So we have lots of resources for you in the show notes, listeners. So Myra is here to discuss with us her extensive experience in essentially what boils down to the physicality of our mental health and where all these intersections are. There's different modalities for therapeutic purposes, and I'm excited to dive into it. I know some of it you can do at home, but you can also work with a practitioner like Myra to do something like co-regulating touch, which we're going to dive into. But also it explains so much about why, for example, yoga is a healing practice for a lot of people. So I am excited to dive in and I would love if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell a little bit about how you came to this work. Yeah, thank you for the question. So I run a group psychotherapy practice out in Denver called Somatic Therapy Partners, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that later. And frankly, I got into the work because I'm that archetype of a wounded healer. So I grew up with immigrant parents. I'm first generation Filipina. And the way that my parents raised me was challenging because it was Filipino cultural, Filipino based while I was living in America. And so a lot of what that means to me is that my parents were really quite totalitarian and authoritarian and very rigid about the way you think ways things needed to be. My basic mandate growing up was to obey, and I'm not really that great at obeying. I'm a rebel at heart. And so I grew up with a fair amount of physical abuse as well as emotional neglect. And in my mid-20s, I was realizing how many relationships I was losing because I was cutting people out for not being my perfect friend. And I had spent my early 20s after undergraduate school in the mountains, living and working in the mountains as a mountaineering instructor in South Africa and California and Colorado. And then I was a ski bum in between. So I did all of that. And by the time I hit late 20s, I realized that I wanted to do something that had greater impact and had more importance in the world, at least as how I viewed it in terms of giving back. So I decided to go to graduate school for social work. And then from there, everything, just one thing led to another. And what I'll say, fast forwarding to right now, is that I'm definitely and 
most assuredly deeply in my purpose on the planet in the ways that I work with my clients and the things that I do. And it feels really good to be so seated in my purpose, uh, working with adults who are struggling with the impacts of early childhood trauma, which was basically my own story. And I'm attracted to doing this work and love doing this work because I've walked the path and I've walked it deeply and I've walked it and it's been really hard and challenging and full of all the things that happen when we actually try to heal. So I got into this work as a result of my own story. And the vision of my practice is to end the impacts of intergenerational trauma. And as a mother to a 14-year-old daughter, no matter what happens for the rest of time while I'm here, I will have won because I know that I have not passed on the same level of neglect and abuse that my parents passed on to me as their legacy. So that's how I got into the work. And that has that's the sort of two-minute synopsis of why I do what I do. I think there's a lot of what you share that will resonate with a lot of listeners. Like I am not from an immigrant family, yet I identify a lot with what you're talking about. And I think when I think of intergenerational trauma, I also have a lot of compassion for my parents who were also raised a a very different way. Right. And it's like, we all do the best that we can with the knowledge that we have. And people who are listening to this podcast, podcast, people who are coming to your practice or seeking therapeutic services. We're all doing the work to try to make it better for the next generation. And that's how the world becomes better. So I love that you also talked about like really feeling good in your purpose. I happen to be reading Jay Shetty's book right now and he calls it Dharma. And it's like, it really speaks to me this idea of finding something you're good at and that fulfills a purpose and just like really leaning into that. And I also feel for you listeners, that this podcast is my dharma. And so here we are, two, two, <laughs> two ladies fulfilling our purpose and hopefully helping others. While we're like talking about explanations of things, I would love if you could tell us more about what a licensed clinical social worker is. And just a little background on that. I actually am a treatment foster care parent and one of our children sees a therapist with that title. And when I first saw that title in an email, I was like, social worker. I think a lot of us think social worker is a very different thing than like a therapeutic partner. So can you talk a little bit about what that title actually is, the work that you do? Sure, absolutely. So the School of Social Work, so I got a master's in social work, which was a two-year program. And then I continue to do continuing education every year. And basically, the School of Social Work is founded upon this idea of working with more marginalized populations. And you can do that both on the therapeutic level, which is what I do. So I see clients individually, and I used to run groups, and I used to do all of those kinds of things. I still do some of those things. And then there's people that also work at the policy level. So social workers can work in agencies, or they can work in, as I am, in a private practice. And What my title means is that I'm licensed by the state to be able to provide psychotherapeutic services within my scope of practice to any client that wants to come and work with me. And so what I do is I provide individual therapy and other things that are coming along, but mainly individual therapy to clients that show up. And I also run my business, which has nothing to do with LCSW, but that's basically what my title means and what I do. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the experience that I've had with someone who is a licensed clinical social worker is very much geared towards 
like trauma informed work and understanding like a broader kind of scope than just the regular talk therapy of tell me about your childhood kind of thing. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that in because it's one of the it's one of the missing definitions that I didn't provide. But you know what I loved about when I was choosing what school to go to, it was either gonna I was either gonna go get a master's in psychology and then maybe a PhD, or I was gonna go into social work. And social work just landed better for me um, as a daughter of immigrants and growing up with a, a different viewpoint than most of my American peers that were Caucasian taking in the broader context of a person's life is really important, especially in the world of trauma, because it can't just be about symptoms. That's a very narrow Western medical pathological view of the world. And what what I'm trained to do and what I've learned how to do over the 20 plus years that I've been a therapist is really meet the whole person where they're at. And a lot of people can say that they do that, and I believe that they're attempting to. And I often think that there's sometimes this missing piece where people don't because I was trained as a clinician to focus on pathology and to focus on symptoms. And what I've had to learn how to do in my somatic training has really helped me do this is just take in the much broader context, context because there's no way to take a person's body and nervous system out of the context in which they grew up in. If there was racism, if there was poverty, if there was domestic violence in the home, and all of those impact the way that our bodies function and the way our nervous systems can function in the world. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really accurate and important part to include in terms of social workers that we're working with. Again, I'll just put it this way, like the whole person, like everything that goes along with that person, not just what they're telling me and telling me in terms of their symptoms. I have found it to be incredibly beneficial when I participate in sessions or anything. I learn so much. So I'm excited that you're here to share it with us. And so you said you currently are working with and your practice is somatic therapy partners which is based in denver and do you do virtual work at all is everything hands-on physicality can you talk a little bit more about that sure so most of the work that we do is in person because one of the apart from being a a truly somatic based practice meaning that all of the practitioners have some kind of somatic training and then as part of their tenure working for somatic therapy partners, they get a lot of somatic education from me and my clinical lead. Um, but yeah, most of our clients come in person. We did do virtual work when we were, especially during COVID times, um, but it's not, it's, I just think it's really important that people come in because there's something to be said about being in the same room with someone and being in the same field energetically, so to speak. I can also see a lot more of the person because one of the lenses with which I'm working primarily when I work with clients is through the lens of the nervous system. So their narrative is important, but only insofar as it helps me understand how their body is responding and how maybe it has been patterned to respond to these traumatic or stressful events. So we don't, I don't do a lot of virtual, but I do maybe five to 10% of my practice is, is virtual. And I think for me, one of the things that helped me understand what you mean by that. For example, if you were working with someone virtually, you wouldn't see that like their leg was shaking if you asked a certain question or that like their fingernails are digging into their palm if you started talking about a certain relationship that they have, different kinds of things that might clue you into different areas. And I think as someone who is very much an adult who did therapy when I was younger and thinking like, oh, I resolved. I'm perfectly normal. Everything's fine, <laughs> which none of us are. Right? Like <laughs> all of us have something to work on. Um, and then 
especially raising my own teenagers. I think it really heightened like a lot of the experiences or unresolved emotions or things that we can define as both little T and big T trauma, right? Like whether you had an experience with a dog that was scary or whether someone made fun of you at school or whether or not your parents didn't say, I'm proud of you or I love you in a way that you needed as often as you needed. Like all of these things can build up to physically bind within our nervous system, as you were mentioning. So can we talk a little bit about while we have already done a show on the somatic experience, can you just remind us exactly what that means and how um, feelings can manifest physically for us? Sure. So I'm trained in somatic experiencing, which is Peter Levine's approach to resolving shock trauma. And shock trauma is different than what I treat, which is, and I'll just talk about this for a second. I basically work with developmental trauma. And how that is different is that from Peter Levine's perspective, when something, when an adverse experience happens, the idea is to get the person's nervous system back into a balanced state where the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system are working in tandem and are balanced together versus getting stuck in one or the other. And when someone struggles with the impacts of early trauma, what that means is their nervous system actually couldn't develop that well. It's going to develop because they grow and they're, they're getting fed and water and all of those kinds of things. But the way that the nervous system develops is suboptimal. So there was never that early, if there isn't that early experience of safety, then there's no getting back to it when there's been early trauma. So there's, that's just one distinction. So somatic experiencing was the foundational method or the foundational approach that I used that started my, or that I trained in that was started my somatic, my somatic career. Now, when people uh, uh, don't resolve any kind of trauma, where it's shock trauma, early trauma, then the idea is that either the nervous system gets stuck, in the case of early trauma, the nervous system gets stuck constantly in a state of either hypervigilance or collapse, right? Which in the world of mood disorders is basically anxiety or depression, and frankly, both, because the nervous system never got to have that ease of functioning. If you're if you are constantly vigilant about your safety as a young person, then what happens is you don't breathe that well. Your brain doesn't develop as fully. Your immune system and your digestive system are often depressed. So a lot of my clients that show up are struggling with immune system issues. They get sick a lot. They've got autoimmune disorders. They've had headaches and stomach aches since they were little and nobody could find a reason why. These are all some of the these are all common things that I hear from my clients. And they'll say to me, Things like, oh, yeah, I've had stomachache since I was little. That's just always what happened. And they talk about it like that's just what was the, no that's just the way life was. And then we start unpacking what happens in their nervous system when it doesn't get enough nutrition and fluids and oxygen and CO2 and all of the toxins getting taken out because there isn't enough, generally speaking, there isn't enough flow in the body. And what happens in the body, and I can't remember if this was your question or not, but generally speaking, there's constriction. And I was even talking to my physical therapist about this. He was poking around near my back and he's like, oh, your kidney is really tight and tucked up in underneath your ribs. And he casually mentioned, he's like, yeah, this was early on when I was working with him. And he was like, yeah, so that's a sign of trauma. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, when your organs are really tight, something didn't go right. That's not actually how your kidneys are supposed to be slotted in your body. Your kidney's supposed to be able to move a little bit and twist in a certain way and come down towards the back when you're relaxed. Which is interesting because in co-regulating touch, that's one of the primary places that I start in terms of holding a person's kidney. 
So when people don't work on their repressed emotional content or they have learned how to either dissociate from it or the brain just simply forgets it, right? Then all of those patterns turn into, all of those repressed emotions turn into patterns in the body that basically lead to more and more dysfunction over time, which leads to disease. So that's a high level view, I think, of the question that you asked. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. I have been helping the kids look for jobs, and even though we are different generations, we both love the tools and how well they are being matched. Same-day phone interview for a good fit seems as good as it gets. And it is because Indeed has streamlined hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in a search, according to US Indeed Data. Instant Match makes it so simple for employers and candidates alike. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resume on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash view. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 job credit now at Indeed.com slash view. Just go to Indeed.com slash view and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash view. Terms and conditions apply need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah, no, it's really helpful. And now that I've seen it in action and lived it myself and done a lot of research also into how impactful it is, like the science is very clear on this. This is not like some woo stuff. This is very clear. And has been known. And we saw a huge spike of it during COVID also because one of the other areas that you work on is physical touch. And so when I was looking into the research, there were a ton of research studies done showing how so much of this negative effect was increased while we were in isolation because the physical touch that can help resolve some of this stuff wasn't happening. I would love if you could talk a little bit. You talked about somatic experiencing, but there's also other modalities that you work with, one of which you talked about co-regulating touch. But can you talk about what those different modalities are and how they work with a patient to support their needs, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think I understand your question. So the modalities that we work with are all somatic-based. So the two big schools in terms of somatics are sensory motor psychotherapy. Uh, and somatic experiencing. And so I have, I'm trained in somatic experiencing. My clinical lead is trained in sensory motor psychotherapy. And then there's a lot of other somatic approaches. So we have a specialist in yoga, Reiki, and breath work. And those are also somatic modalities because they involve the body more so than the mind. And I'm not saying that the mind isn't important in all of this, but what I think people don't totally understand is that the mind is often shaped by what's happening in the body. Everywhere all the time, people are talking about the mind-body connection, and I totally get it, and it's true, 
But what's actually more true is that the mind and body are one. And what I mean by that is that if your mind, if your body is really healthy and you didn't experience a lot of trauma, typically your mind is much more resilient. Psychologically, you're a lot more flexible. But when you are struggling with actual disease, like I have a friend who is um, struggling with the impacts of Lyme disease, and then there's a bunch of things that happen from that, and his mind is really negative, and not for, and, and that's not a judgment, but because his body is so full of pain and chronic pain and lack of support and lack of touch, which we'll get to, then his mind has a really hard time getting out of those negative states. So mind and body are actually one, and it's really important that people start to get that because People, especially in our society, people really separate the mind from the body, and they're always talking about transcending the body. So those are some of the modalities that we work with at our practice. And then I think you had a question about touch, or I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to give it back to you and see where yeah. I'd like to go. I, I think it would be helpful if we talked a little bit about how in some of these areas, specifically co-regulating touch, but also like I have a lot of curiosity around Reiki, which is like the energy around a body, but not actually touching a body. Or I know on your website, you have a resource for yoga and the different activities that one could do to improve well-being. And so just exploring all of the different areas where we can support our own well-being, which I 100% agree. It is not mental health or physical health. It is really also intertwined in a way that I think humans have done a disservice to ourselves for so long and thinking it's separate when really it's so intertwined. But the work that you and your practice does is more than just somatic or, yeah. Like a therapy, yeah, it's more than that. Yeah. Yeah, you were asking me about the physicality and also about touch. Before we do any kind of touch work, one of the things that I have all of my clinicians complete that I also complete with the client is something called the body record. And it's basically a set of questions that uh, I came up with and, and that colleagues also helped me come up with to ask about the physical functioning of the client. Because a client literally can come in and say, yeah, I'm depressed, but all the rest of my life is fine. And meanwhile, they're, drink they're drinking six Cokes in the morning as their breakfast. And they get these stomach aches or ulcers. They've got these chronic conditions or they're always sick all the time. And we as psychotherapists don't often ask about the physicality of our clients. And it's actually really important because in my view, if the mind and body is one and they're telling me about the stomach aches that they've had since they were three that have gone untreated and now they have migraines six to seven times a week, that is absolutely information I need to know because what it's really telling me is about the level of functioning and also the level of trauma that this person potentially experienced. I'm not saying that people with a lot of autoimmune disorders or disease or whatever ex have experienced trauma, but I also lean that way. I'm like, oh, there's some things going wrong that some of it's genetic and some of it is from our environment. And one of the things that people so often underestimate is the impact of those early childhood years on their current adult functioning, whether it's re in relationships, whether it's how they deal with their emotions, and most especially with how they deal with their, what's happening in their health. And so one of the primary modalities that I use because I'm in love with it, and when I first got trained in it, it was the, the quantum leaps of growth that I had taken as a result of one training and getting touched in a very specific and intentional way, a very therapeutic way, was beyond what I could have imagined. And I've been in therapy, in and out of therapy for a long time, and I've seen coaches and shamans and all the things. And then I got this touch work, and it was like I just 
it almost felt like I got this fast track, like I got this hidden doorway into health and wellness and resilience. And ever since I took that first training, I've just been nuts about it. It's the reason why I'll never give, give up clinical work because it's just so gratifying to work with clients on this level. One of the things that is so important, and you brought it up during COVID, people went crazy during COVID for a lot of different reasons. And I don't mean going crazy in a bad way, but part of it, part of the pandemic that was happening before the pandemic was the lack of healthy, therapeutic, and even loving touch that people experience. And when people get touched, it's often not intentional. When you hug your friend, you're just doing this thing and it feels good, but you're not, a lot of times there's not intention in the way that you're touching people. And just to jump ahead to the good part, like that's, that's the tool that I use when I'm working with clients and I'm holding their kidneys or I'm holding their, their brainstem is I'm sending my attention and my intentional touch into their system and supporting the nervous system and coming back into balance. And one of the, one of the great facts that I always spout is about how touch is the very first of our five senses to develop. So when we're in utero and we're little embryos growing in our mom's womb, the thing that we're getting touched by are all the fluids and all of the elements and all of the hormones and all of the things that are in those fluids. So for example, if you grow, if you are in utero and your mom is super stressed out because she's a single mom and she doesn't have enough money and she doesn't have enough social supports, then the first kind of touch that this little baby in utero receives is cortisol. And so to have a little baby bathed in cortisol, which is meant to be not a long acting hormone in your body, but if it's there chronically, it is definitely going to impede that uterus, that, that, excuse me, not the uterus, the fetus's growth. And so when we get out of the womb and in our society where touch is really taboo, especially in my field, like when I was telling colleagues I was going to start touching my clients, they were like, okay, Myra. They looked at me like I was nuts and that what I was doing was really woo-woo. And of all the modalities I've ever been trained in, it has been truly one of the most effective and long-lasting in terms of sustainable outcomes for my clients. They're just able to shift. And the number one thing that I see in terms of symptoms that shift, and there's a lot of things that shift, is their ability to be more compassionate with themselves. Because from a not in a nonverbal way, by holding their kidneys and holding their brainstem and other places in their body, they're getting an experience of embodied safety of care, of attunement, of meaningful connection. And those, especially for my clients, those were often the missing pieces in their early childhood years where they just were not getting those emotional and needs of safety met. And those touch to me is akin to breathing. If that kid does not get good enough, good enough, safe enough, healthy touch, then it is gonna be really hard for that kid as they grow up to thrive unless someone or something intervenes in order to improve that uh, early, early adverse childhood experience. I love the example of like a mother and a fetus and then also a baby, because one of the things that like started along my health journey was becoming a mother. Like somehow I wasn't interested in health for myself, but the minute that I had a child to be responsible for, I wanted to do everything for their benefit. And I remember learning at a La Leche League meeting that nursing my child was producing feelings of oxytocin and all of these like wonderful feel-good hormones because our bodies are designed to want you to do that, right? Like it wants you to make an attachment bond with your child and yes. the child gets a benefit from a number of other things. 
And I am such a science nerd that while you're talking about like the fulfillment of emotions from touch, it is also just very scientifically true that touch provides an incredible positive response for us in terms of the hormonal and uh, other physical benefits that come from it. And I thought it was super interesting. I was looking at all these studies and there was one that was done in 2019 that was a double blind randomized control study. So like as a very great quality study for those who don't know what all those terms mean. And they were able to demonstrate that just tactile brushing in terms of like whether it was self-regulation or whether someone else was doing meaningful brushing on your skin provided a positive outcome for health. And that to me is like, okay, if we think about dry brushing as being something that we can do for ourselves and just taking the time to be intentional with self-touch or taking the time to physically touch on others. For me, I have four children and one of them has severe ADHD and autism. And I have known since he was a young child that what he needed to help him regulate was touch. And one of the first things that I do when I talk to his teachers, when I talk to anybody is I'm like, when he becomes dysregulated, you have to get on his level. So when he was younger, I'd have to kneel down and I have to like gently pet his shoulders and just like comfort him in that moment to help him self-regulate. And it's sometimes it's really hard to do because what they're doing is not something you want to like comfort. And I think oftentimes we were raised in an environment where we think like, oh, if I give this person what they need in this moment, then they'll think that this behavior will get them what they need. But when it comes to like calming the nervous system, we can't possibly feel safe to redevelop different mechanisms of processing things if we don't feel safe, right? Like I I think it became very clear to me from a scientific perspective when I was like doing all the um, math, so to speak, from a somatic experience, like, okay, we can be in therapy and we can be trying to resolve some sort of trauma that we are stuck in, right? Like that we never dealt with or we buried so deep, we forgot it happened or whatever, right? Like if we're raising that to the surface, but we're not in an environment where we feel safe, then our body can't feel regulated. And touch is a way that a lot of us, I, I, I don't know that everybody, well, especially I think maybe because they don't feel safe. Maybe that's why touch wouldn't be great for them. But I see how beneficial it is for me to have a conversation with my child who is dysregulated after I'm holding him, I'm I'm comforting him and helping him re-regulate. And then I'm saying, okay, now let's do three deep breaths together, right? Like I, I hold him, we do three deep breaths together. And it's an entirely different reaction and conversation than if I were to just like bark at him, don't do that or whatever it might be. It's harder. It is infinitely harder as a parent to take the time to do those things and to like watch it happen. But when I think about co-regulating touch, it I think about the experience that I've had with my son and how it was a game changer. Like I had to teach my husband how to do it. And the kids would sometimes, his siblings, when he would get dysregulated, would be like, mom, 
come and pet Wesley. (laughs) I'm like, you too. Like, just give him a hug and tell him he's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so touched. I just have to say, I was getting tearful as you were talking because I'm trained in this modality called co-regulating touch. And what you just demonstrated and spoke to so beautifully is how When as a parent, you are regulated enough to not discharge all of the anger and the stress and the worry about what your kid is doing or how it might reflect on you, and you can show up in this calm way and truly meet your kid. Like that was an example of meeting your kid where he's at. He's really dysregulated and instead of barking at him, which most parents want to do and we do when we're we're under-resourced, you come along and you're the most regulated person in the room at that point. And that's really the role that I also have with my clients is No matter what happens in the session, it is so paramount that I stay regulated, which means that I'm grounded. It means that I'm present. It means that I feel safe in my own body, right? So that when I meet this client and their system is, you know, for lack of a better word, vibrating really high or just basically shut down and it feels like nothing is moving at all. And I come along and I apply this safe enough therapeutic touch with their consent, then what they learn is an embedded and embodied experience of safety. Safety isn't this concept that we we can create it in our lives, but really when you actually feel safe, and this is part of healing, you can feel it in your body. And sometimes it doesn't even matter what's happening around you. Like I think of my clients that get overstimulated when they walk into crowds and they're like, and they got to, they start to freak out and get anxious and they got to get out of there in social situations or in big population situations. But when clients have that experience of safety, they know how to come back to it. They know how to do it with their breath. They know how to do it with their mind. They know how to do it by just simply grabbing their partner's hand and really feeling the feel of their hand, their partner's hand holding their hand. And again, what I love about your experience is nothing can happen for that kid or for an adult without that experience of safety. Really, like it can't grow. It's hard to, it's not that you can't get the things done in life, but the energy that, because I think a lot of my clients do a lot of busy work because they're basically trying to avoid the experience in their body of not feeling safe. So they stay busy. They do all these things. They overwork. They work out too much. Like I could give you the whole rundown and I'm sure you know a lot about it. But what you're talking about is like, oh, hey, buddy, I'm right here with you. And I'm going to show you that without words by just gently and lovingly just petting your arms so that you can feel the skin that is soft on my hand and you can feel the gentle pressure that I apply when I'm hugging you or doing that sort of petting thing. And those are the things that, especially in our society, are really missing. I I don't know if you know this, but in my training, I was told that there was this study about like high-touch countries and low-touch countries, and the U.S. ranked in the bottom five, meaning that we are a country that doesn't have enough healthy touch in our society. It's so taboo. It's so all of these things. And that is a major problem. It's a major problem because that touch is the way that we can settle down. Like when I lay next to my husband, I almost automatically get sleepy, even if it's in the middle of the day, because I'm just so safe and easy with him. So my body starts to slow down and I feel relaxed. And I also sometimes get sleepy. That's an experience of co-regulation, right? Anyways, thank you for that story. I just love that you know how to do that and that you really know that there's no, there's nothing you can say until that kid is more settled and feels safer. And then you can say, hey, so we don't, we don't throw things at people or we don't, we, we speak nicely to each other. I think a lot of parents are so, myself included at times, are so quick to be like, why? Like very uh, reactive. 
And really what our children need in order to thrive is for us to be really grounded and regulated. So thank you for doing your work and for showing up with your kids the way that you do, because that's how we literally change the world. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, who are offering their once a year rare free turkey with code WHOLEVIEW. ButcherBox is my one-stop solution for saving time, saving money, sustainability, and a fantastic source for the quality protein most of us need more of. And they're giving you $20 off your first order plus a free turkey, which perfect time of year. I'm so excited. It's turkey season. You know how I feel about autumn. ButcherBox not only makes life easier by having nourishing meals ready in no time because you can simply open your freezer, but the quality is unparalleled. Humanely raised, no antibiotics, no added hormones, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-cut seafood. That means that my kids are getting health-promoting benefits like conjugated linoleic acid and healthy omega-3 fatty acids. And it's shipped for free, frozen, right to my door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. No other meat delivery service compares to ButcherBox. They are a certified B Corp focused on quality for you, the animal, and the planet. And it allows us to have a home-cooked meal nearly every day in our home. It could not happen without ButcherBox stocked freezer. ButcherBox has a variety of high quality cuts at amazing values with exclusive member deals. Getting it all delivered right to your doorstep feels like magic without needing to do a single thing. And you can choose from a variety of box plan options. We like the curated custom one ourselves, but no matter what you choose, you can change it at any time. But lock it in now because the holiday season is made better with ButcherBox. For a limited time, they're offering our listeners turkey free in your first box plus $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash wholeview and use code wholeview to get this deal. And nobody is perfect 100% of the time. I think one of the other things is when I am not so regulated and when I don't have the reaction that I want to have, being able to come back to my kids and say, I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you in that moment and apologize. Like that also from like a parenting perspective, I just really want to encourage people to apologize to their children because it doesn't make us weaker. It doesn't like erode the parental role that we have. In fact, what it's doing is modeling what we want our children to do and to become and to show them that compassion and care is important. And like, we love our children, hopefully, more than anything in the world, right? I think most parents would do anything for their children. And sometimes it has been my experience that the words I'm sorry have cost people relationships, that someone is just unwilling to apologize. And it, it doesn't have to be for the thing either, right? Like, I'm not apologizing that I reacted to my child behaving inappropriately. I'm apologizing for how I showed up because it wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't me being my best self. And it's not dependent on my child apologizing for his behavior either. Me in and of myself in a bubble, like I wasn't there in that moment the way that I wanted to show up. And I think that accountability 
only models for my children what I want them to do. And so like, yes, you're never going to be perfect. I think a lot of people I hear from people like, oh, that's so amazing. I could never parent that way. Or like, oh, I feel so guilty that I don't do that or I haven't done that in the past. And I'm like, that's not helping anybody, right? Like what I want people to feel in these moments is like, how can I show up? And it can look different for every child. Like I have another child who needs to hold hands in crowds. Like that's just, we went to Disney World and this child was holding one of our hand, one of either our hands or their sibling hand 100% of the time. And sometimes I got touched out and I was like, okay, but they still have this need. Husband, you hold this child's hand. <laughs> like, or we're going to go on a ride. Okay, oldest sibling, like you hold this child's hand. Like, it's okay to have your own needs. Yeah. I'm just going off on a, a completely separate tangent here. But I, I think, love it. But I, I hear a lot of pushback from people about, about why this wouldn't work for them. And I want to validate, like, I hear that you have your own needs. Everybody does. And, like, we can collaborate and find ways to fulfill everybody's needs. And a lot of this came from training that I took called collaborative problem solving, where I understanding that a child does not dysregulate because they want to be bad, like that every child wants to be good. They want to be their best self, but they lack the skills or they don't feel safe or whatever it might be in that moment. And so for me, doing that touch and calming motion with my son is much more about like, I want to get to the root of what caused his dysregulation because while we might be on the receiving end of something being thrown or him yelling or whatever and being like, I don't know what set him off. He clearly was triggered or upset by something. And his perception, because he is autistic, is very different than like our perception of how someone either spoke with him or his social understanding. And I can't have that conversation with him to ask him, how do you feel until he's calm and regulated? And I think it's also allowed me to have more compassion for adults in this way. I'm sure this translates into your work, right? Like, because I'm seeing it in children, I'm realizing that, like you said, a lot of people get stuck there and they learn these maladaptive coping skills to, as you mentioned early on, put up these walls and push people away. That was me. That was 100% me. And I realized that wasn't serving me and that I wanted to work on that. But I also see it so much in other adults. Like now when people come to me and they're like, oh, I'm so frustrated with this person, blah, 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 they did. And I'm like, my first reaction, I, I don't even know how I got to this place in my life because it's very much not where I was five years ago. It's like, gosh, I feel so sad for that person that they're so miserable and depressed that like that's what they're doing right now because that's yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. And the work that you're doing is essentially being the parent that they didn't have in that moment to help them calm and regulate and find safety to then be able to get to the root of what the issue is. Like, yeah. I, I imagine that's the, based on the science and based on the experience that I've had, like, I can see how that provides a safe space for someone to finally unearth some things that have been buried deep in their body, in their mind for so long. Yeah. You are so cool, Stacey. I just have to say, like, you just, <laughs> like I just, I have to unpack a few things that you said because they're okay. so paramount to our conversation. So the first is apologizing to your child. And old school parenting was that the parents were the experts and they knew everything and that whatever they said goes. You let the kid cry it out because they're just trying to get attention. But what happens when we apologize and over time repair with our children for the moments that we weren't quite our best selves? 
is what you're really doing is in, it's another form of co-regulation. It's teaching this child like, hey, I'm a safe person and I'm a safe person because I take responsibility for my actions. So I just have a really quick story. And then I want to talk more about things you said. But when my daughter was five or six, my husband was away on a trip and he traveled a lot at that time. And I was under a lot of stress working and I had just had a bad day and my daughter did one thing wrong and I just totally lost it. And I just yelled at her and I was like, you're going to go upstairs and you're not going to have any dinner. And immediately I was flooded with shame and guilt because I know growing up in that kind of environment where my parents treated my emotions like it was an object that they could throw out, throw around to do with whatever they want. I couldn't just let that sit. And so I went upstairs and I opened the door and I sat there looking at her and she starts crying and she's, and I might start crying. And she said, I knew you would come because she had enough experiences with me where I had acted out of the way that I wanted to act. And she could trust that I was going to come and apologize and tell her that I cared about her feelings and that I was so sorry. And that I'm continuing to work on this because that's my default um, survival response when I'm upset is to fight. So there's fight, flight, and freeze, and there's more, but that's typically what I do. So when we repair with our children, for those listening, if you want to have a close and sustained relationship with your children as they grow into adulthood, starting to say sorry, starting to accept responsibility for the ways that you acted out of term and not blaming them. It's easy for our parents to be like, well, you made me mad. It's like, yeah, I get that. That's definitely true. Kids can be really disrespectful of all the things. And ultimately, one of the primary roles of a parent is to teach their kids how to self-regulate. So another piece that I wanted to talk about was that children don't know how to regulate on their own. They 1,000% need their caregivers to be the most regulated people in the room so that when they have a tantrum, right, they can get calmed down and then learn how to deal with these feelings a little bit better, right? And then you started talking about, I can't remember what you were talking about, but as you were talking about, I think you were talking about people who are really reactive right? Someone that went off on another person. And we have this term right now that makes me really sad about like Karens and canceling Karens. And honestly, when I see those events, I think to myself, like something went really wrong in that person's early life, that this is the way that they need to show power or feel better about themselves when they actually feel probably helpless or not safe or not resourced. And it is, it's sad. 100%. 100%. Because the cost of doing business, of acting the way that people who are unhinged or overwhelmed or dysregulated show up, that tells me so much about their inability to actually regulate themselves on their own and let something go that they would be willing to go to jail for yelling at an airline steward or like whatever it is that people do. That is deep dysregulation. And again, it's just my own imagination, but I totally believe that something went wrong in their early life and they don't know how to regulate. And so this is the way they do it, by being bullies, by all the things that folks can do when they are really out of their minds. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. So much of this conversation I'm having with you, I just feel like we're twinsies in some ways. And you know so much. It's so amazing to me that you've been able to gain this kind of education. Not, I don't know if you're a social worker, but like I had to go through all of this training and I make this joke, but it's not really a joke. Like I had to go to graduate school to learn empathy. Because I didn't grow up with that. My parents were not empathetic people. And not because they were bad people, but that's just the way that they were raised and they were carrying it on, as we talked about. But I had to go to graduate school and all of these trainings to learn how to do empathy because it was not modeled for me. And empathy is actually a set of behaviors that engenders safety in a person's body. And that's a lot of what you were talking about. And I appreciate it so much. Well, thank you. That's kind and generous. And I certainly had... Like, I don't feel like I am the same person. My husband and I have talked about it. Like, I'm not the same person that I was 
pre-pandemic. And part of that is because we signed up to be foster parents right before the pandemic. Wow. We'd done our home study and we'd done everything. And then like when we got our first child, I remember that there were like all these COVID protocols in terms of like the child had to be tested 24 hours before they came in the house and like all of these different things that we had to do because it was like at the height of the pandemic when we started taking in children into our home. And the very first child that we took in had physical abuse. And I realized that a lot of my parenting style leaned on escalating, right? Like that I would just solve parenting problems by like getting louder or asserting dominance. And that did not work on a deeply traumatized child who had undergone physical harm. Yeah, And so I was like, oh, I've got to stop doing this because it's going to trigger this child and it pushes that child to not trust me and like all these things. They're wondering what's next, right? Like because in their experience, the yelling wasn't the concern. It was that the yelling always preceded physical abuse. That's right. And it caused me to reexamine how I wanted to parent, how I wanted to show up and not just for the children that we were fostering, but for my biological children. Like, well, you know what? I didn't really like it that I grew up in a house where my parents constantly yelled. Like, (laughs) that wasn't great. What can I do otherwise? And it also happened to be when my children were going through, like, puberty and coming into their teenage years where we could have a lot more conversation around what they were feeling or what their needs were and those kinds of things. And we were stuck in a house together, like, oh, there's a lot of, like, stuckness. We all know yeah. <laughs> like that, that isolation where it was an opportunity to evaluate what was happening in the house and make improvements. And I won't lie, like, it was rough. My husband and I almost didn't think we were going to make it because I was doing all of this emotional growth and he was at work and he wasn't doing it. And so we weren't aligned anymore. And it was it was a lot. And I look back now and I'm like, gosh, I I am not the same person I was. And I can see so many relationships that I would handle things differently. And I know that's because I've done a lot of work on myself and like, I'm going to let go of that stuff in the past. And the reason that I bring on guests on the show to talk about these kinds of things like this, because it was very much like a physical Let's understand what is happening in all parts of our body other than emotional health for so long. The food that we eat impacts our mood, the, all that stuff. We went deep in that, but somehow never talked about how very important some of these like early things that happen in your childhood form as you talk about the what manifests later in life as autoimmune disease or different kinds of things. And I think, honestly, my experience, I'm curious if this has been yours, my experience is that people also hesitate to talk about this on the medical community because they don't want people to believe that they're saying that their symptoms don't exist or aren't real, right? Like when I talk to medical professionals about, have you ever talked to a client to say, well, your cortisol is chronically high and you have all these autoimmune diseases, me. Have you looked into some therapeutic work to dive into what might be 
affecting your vagus nerve or how your body is reacting on an emotional level that is affecting physically. And they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, first of all, that's not what they're trained in. But also they don't want to say, well, this could be caused by anxiety because what a patient hears, what the doctors are telling me that a patient hears is that they're making it up, that it's not a real thing. And I would love if people understood that both could be true, that like oh. your symptoms can come from anxiety and you still have this issue, right? Like we have to address it from both perspectives. I agree. And I feel like if they, our medical system is so siloed, like even specialists within the medical field don't talk to each other about what they're doing with a, a client. And if mental health providers were given the same, my experience has been is that medical providers often, it's not that they poo the work that I do, but because it's not scientifically validated and there aren't all these 27 million studies, right? Like it's not legit. And I get it. Like some things really need to be taken to like looked at. And what's also true is that science can't measure everything just yet. So they can't actually, they might not be able to measure the fact that my client feels super safe with me. And that's one of the reasons, and because I was holding their skull for six months, one or two weeks, one once every week, they're, because I have a client that this happened to, their migraines have gone down by 60%. Now, I don't claim to treat migraines. My point is if doctors could partner with clinicians about how to best treat the patient, like here's the medical side of things and what are you going to be doing to support this and how can we help measure this? I just feel like everyone would be healthier and happier. So I agree with you. I think that the medical piece doesn't, it doesn't often support wellness because it only focuses on the symptoms. And while I'm focusing on symptoms, I'm also, one of the things that I do that I also train all my clinicians in is tapping into their inner healer or what I call it the healing matrix, right? If Western medicine is all about pathology and fixing the thing that's wrong, the way that we work is like we trust that the body knows how to heal itself. And our job is to create the right enough condition so the body can come back into balance and do the thing that it knows how to do. And that idea of trusting the body is just not what happens in Western medicine. So I can't remember how we got here, but I hear what you're saying about that because it's challenging and we just, we need everyone to be working together as a team, which is, I think, really hard one. The holiday season is officially upon us. If you're not feeling it, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> I love this time of year and I especially love choosing to shop with my wallet with brands that align with my values. And I would love if you would support my small woman-owned business and Beauty Counter, a B Corp focused on sustainability and safety at beautycounter.com slash Toth. They have 14 new sets, perfect for gift giving of the holidays or gifting yourself some self-care, whatever works for you. And I will be so grateful and appreciative for what it does for our family if you choose to shop at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth or just go to beautycounter.com and choose me at checkout S-T-A-C-Y. T-O-T-H. And if it's your first time, you can get 20% off using code CLEANFORALL20 using an email that's never shot before. Well, this has been 
a big positive love fest I'm going to throw out at the same time. I'm so frustrated that medical professionals have absolutely no problem giving dietary advice, even though they're not nutritionists. Like somehow all of this other stuff that the science shows is linked to mental and emotional wellness and nothing is ever recommended about that. Like, for example, when I went to the doctor when I was a teenager to get a Prozac prescription, there was no discussion about any sort of additional services that I might need. At that time, I happened to also be bulimic. I have like I had all these mm-hmm. other issues that I wasn't getting help for. Yeah. And the doctor just gave the prescription for Prozac, yet had no problem also discussing with me that I needed to lose weight at that time. And here, let me tell you how to do that. And I'm like, I'm looking back like, you're not a nutritionist. You don't want to talk about these other things because that's somebody else's lane to swim in. Yet why are you having this conversation? And I say that because a lot of harm came from being someone who had an eating disorder and disordered eating and was given advice that only exacerbated that. And I wish people would be more aware. Yeah, Yeah. often happening, right? Like often more aware that they're not the expert on that. (laughs) They need to leave that to somebody else. Well, Uh, we also struggle in our society with thin body supremacy. It's like, if you're thin, then you must be healthy. And if you're not, then you must not be healthy. And what we know is that there is, you could actually be healthy at every size. And it doesn't matter how much research is out there about that. There's a whole organization called Healthy at Every Size. Like, and I used to work in eating disorders and it's like, Oh my, like working with clients that were anorexic and they would get praised and praised and praised until finally their bones were like showing through their body. And I'm like, so everyone around you basically supported your eating disorder by lauding you for losing all of this weight when what is behind it is a lot of trauma, a lot of need for control, all of these kinds of things. And when I worked in eating disorders, I would get so mad at medical providers who would offer this unsolicited advice about how they should lose weight or like, oh, you're looking great. You're just fine. And so, of course, for the anorexic patient, be like, see, nothing has to change. And for the client that was in a bigger body, it would create more of the shame, which would just recapitulate the eating disorder. Right. So anyways, that's my soapbox about that. Yes. I'm just, <laughs> yes. I'm going to put that over there. <laughs> yes. Okay. So getting back on topic, <laughs> one of the videos on your website talked it was dr pat ogden i think is how you pronounce her name and she wrote the book on sensory motor psychotherapy that's and one of the things that i thought was super interesting that she talked about how people instinctively seek out physical ways to basically subconsciously address trauma stored in our body and she gave examples like self-defense classes yoga becoming faster or stronger in exercise This made so much sense to me as you were talking about kind of the body knowing what it needs to do, right? Like intuitively, people are drawn to some of these kinds of things. And the science is also showing that the body is affected by these emotions. And so now we're seeing, okay, people are figuring out how to do this. Can you talk a little bit more about how one might be able to intuit some of this on their own, right? Like if they're listening to us talk and they're like, well, does this apply to me? Do I need these services? Can I can I be aware both these are positive outlets you can find, but they also might be a sign that you need to do some more work, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So let me just talk broadly about the sympathetic side of the nervous system, which is the part that's the rev part of our nervous system. It, it allows us to get up and go. It's where fight flight lives. It's the part of the nervous system that gets us into action. So in a really broad way, and there's a doctor who's done research on this anecdotally named Dr. Bob Scare. And in his book, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but he talks about how a lot of elite athletes and people who are big adrenaline seekers actually have a history of trauma. And from the nervous system's perspective, especially when it comes to a specific event where maybe you were overwhelmed and like couldn't fight back or get away, from the somatic experiencing perspective, one of the things that we believe is that the body has to complete that, that fight or flight response in order to be restored to balance. So for people who are doing a lot of exercise and a lot of busy work and basically staying in high levels of activity, and by high levels, I just mean like you're constantly organizing your closet or you go to the gym seven days a week, no matter how tired you are. On that side of the nervous system, which is the sympathetic arousal system, it's a way of trying to discharge, and that's the word that they use in somatic experiencing, discharge the energy that goes along with a fight or flight response. And all that discharge means is I successfully ran away or I, just, I successfully fought back and then my life was saved. And there's even been studies about, there was this one, I'll say this story quickly, but there years ago, I think back in the 80s, there was a group of kids who I think were on a bus that went over a cliff or something like that. And they couldn't get out and for a little while. And two kids managed to like dig their way out and go and get help. And then everyone was rescued. And what they found was, is that the kids who got out and went and got help and saved the rest of the kids had better psychological and physical outcomes than the kids who were trapped and couldn't actually physically get their way out of it. And there are numerous case studies around people who can save themselves versus the people in the same situation who couldn't. And so in a broad perspective, when people are overdoing things, they're too busy all the time. They set their kids up for like six activities within the span of one day over the summer. Or they're going from one thing to the next, or they're working in really high stress situations. I'm thinking of a, a client that I used to work with, and she was an activist. And her she had a lot of early trauma, and she was recapitulating it by going into these really dangerous situations and protesting and getting in people's faces. This was her fight response. So in that way, it's a way the nervous system is trying to discharge all of this vital life force energy, except for that over time, it's depleting. Now, on the other side of things, when people have unresolved trauma, if, you're, if they're stuck in the parasympathetic, that can often look like numbness, dissociation, not doing a lot. In the case of bulimia, the way that I think about bulimia is that bulimia's food is the way that person is trying to stuff feelings down. They're just trying to like not feel all of this you know, pent up energy and unprocessed emotional stuff. And sometimes the system will just get overwhelmed and it will just go into collapse. And that looks like depression. And that can also turn into things like overeating. It can turn into things like procrastination and me not doing my, what my life's purpose is or not knowing what my life purpose is because I'm just stuck scrolling on my phone or watching TV all the time. There's, there's a balance between these two poles of like not enough activity, numbness, emptiness, and dissociation all the way to the other side of like overdoing it and basically depleting your nervous system. And both of those sides of the spectrum are all trauma responses. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, I think yeah. it also paints a good picture for people too of a lot of the different kinds of activities that you mean. I think when we generally say avoidance, like people might not know, or if we say numbness, like they might be like, oh, I'm not numb. But yes, I do just binge Netflix entirely when I'm not working. Or 
for me this morning, I was very frustrated with my husband about something. And I just started cleaning. Like I've had my suitcases from going on a trip that have just been sitting there for three days. And suddenly, right before we were going to record the podcast, I needed to unpack my suitcase. I needed to do all these things. Ugly. And, and while I'm doing it, I say to him, I'm like, I just want to let you know I'm frustrated with you. I'm not ready to talk about it. I need you to just give me the space. And later we will talk about it. But please do not talk to me because I'm very frustrated with you. And as I'm like unpacking my suitcase and as you were talking, I'm like, that is what I was doing, right? I was like yes. avoiding the fight, right? I was putting the fight energy into something else because I didn't want to fight. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. Like that was a much more constructive activity for me than creating the argument that would have happened if I had the conversation with him then. And now I was able to laugh about it, right? It's only been like an hour, but I'm already able to laugh about it and like, okay, I can have this conversation with him. And he's a human, we're all, whatever it might be. But I think knowing what activities we're choosing, I think the other example that you gave is overeating. Emotionally eating is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be mm -hmm. like the example that I give is sometimes like if I'm super overwhelmed and my brain is bad and it's like, it's like not in a good place and it's like, Stacy, eat ice cream. It knows that it's going to give a serotonin boost to my brain and I'm going to feel calm and then I can deal with it. I think the thing is that we all need to be aware that's what's happening that's so that I can make an intentional choice. Like, yes, that I my brain is telling me this right now because whatever. And am I choosing to do it or is my body controlling something that I don't really intentionally want to do? And I think had I yeah. learned that at a much younger age, had I gotten the therapy that I needed food wouldn't have been a comfort. It wouldn't have been a thing that became a long-term issue for me. But when you were talking about bulimia, not only is it like stuffing down, but it's also control, right? I think yes. for me, I had a lot of lack of control. Like I wanted control and I felt very overwhelmed at that time. And there, there were situations I couldn't control and I controlled that with food. Exactly. And I, I see it a lot in younger children like it's just heartbreaking how many teenagers have eating disorders or disordered eating and we talk about it being a problem from social media and all those things and absolutely like the filters on social media the judgment the, all that stuff is like incredibly problematic and i also think that if people were practicing this co-regulation like learning how to put their phone down when they were feeling those feelings, it would be a much different society, if that makes sense. Oh, a thousand percent. There's so many more ways to distract today than there ever has been. Like I was born in the early 70s and like if I needed to go take out my frustrations, I was climbing trees as a kid. I was riding my bike. Mm. And now I, I can drive by school campuses and see kids walking, not in a bad way. They look like zombies because they're on their phone and they're just, it breeds more and more disconnection, which I feel like is, it's one of the reasons why I also do the work that I do is because people are so disembodied. They have no idea what's happening in their body because they're just stuck in their head or the last cool scroll that they saw that gave them that little dopamine or serotonin hit in their body. And it's I get worried about our future generations, not just in, in the most simplest way, not going outside and playing. And also that we as parents can get stuck. And if we're, again, if we're dysregulated, then we're not actually supporting our kids and learning how to be regulated and embody a sense of safety in the world. 
and it just makes it harder to live that way. I'm I have loved this conversation with you. Thank you so much for, as you said, we're twins in a lot of ways, but I think, I hope that for listeners, it's been eye-opening into, because we have a lot of listeners with autoimmune issues or different kinds of things. And I was willing to tweak every little bite of food that I ate and give up eating out and like all of these things. But it never occurred to me that there were other things that I could do from a um, perspective of mental health. Also things like sunshine and walking and sleep also go into it. And we talk about all those different things. But I think understanding fully that there is a much greater impact on what could be symptoms of this, as you call it, undischarged trauma and stress on the body, right? And one of the things that I always like to leave on is what people can do to be of service to themselves or to others. And I think it would be great if you could share maybe some of the symptoms or common things that you see with clients on what someone could self-evaluate or if they're seeing it in their partner, like, hey, I heard this podcast. You can listen to it. Here it is. I noticed X, right? What could someone take away and think, okay, these are some symptoms or these are some things that I've noticed that could be related and could be helped with somatic therapeutic work and co-regulation and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So from a psychological perspective, the number one thing that I see with nearly 100% of my clients is low self-worth and a lot of self-negating kind of ways of being. And one of the things that's important to know is that trauma and shame 100% of the time go together. This is where clients believe things like, well, I deserve to get hit. It's like, "Mm, actually, nobody deserves to get hit no matter what you did. One thing that they could assess is what their relationship is to themselves and how they, and specifically how they react to someone wanting to help them. I can't tell you how often I have met with clients who are hyper-independent. I call it pathologically independent, where they have to be the one. And this is a symptom of early trauma. It's like, nope, I can't rely on the world. So I'm going to just do everything my damn self. Whether it's in business or with your partner or with your friends, it's like just the idea of something, someone helping you is going to create some kind of activation in your nervous system. It's going to be like, no, I don't need help, right? Or like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. I've got this, right? Like there's like this. For me, anyways, the way that I reacted to that was like, you don't have to help me. I totally have this under control. And all the while, my trauma physiology was running the course. And the way, even though outwardly I showed myself as very overconfident, inwardly I'd be like, oh, why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? Now they're going to think you're a bad person. They're not going to like you. And those kinds of self-negating narratives where you're just not worthy enough for whatever it is that happened. So that would be one thing on the psychological plane that I would encourage them to take a look at because. Those kinds of narratives can change, but it also means that your physiology has to learn how to come into regulation in order to support that change in a sustainable way where you are literally really loving yourself. And when you really love yourself, you're not willing to tolerate toxic relationships or bad behaviors by other people or being treated in a certain way as one example. So that would be one piece. And then the other piece is I would just invite them to take a look at their physical functioning. Are they the kind of person that gets sick a lot? Do they have a lot of allergies and they can't, they can only eat like 10 different foods because their body can only tolerate so much? Those are also often, you know, like signs of 
poor immune and digestive functioning, which are the primary issues that I hear about with my clients. And take a real assessment. Are you tired all the time, no matter how much sleep you get? Does your experience change based on what you're eating? And eating is one of the easy, easiest, I should say simplest, but not necessarily easy, but a simple way to track like, okay, when I eat these foods that I crave, like cookies and fried chicken, right? Those are actually two of my favorite foods of all time. What is the impact on me and how do I end up feeling? Because just that one practice alone versus like, and I'm not saying that people need to eat salads all the time, but eating food that's less processed, eating like foods that are better for your body. And, and there's no one diet that goes for it or one way of eating that's good for people. But like, if you can start to notice that you feel better when you eat in alignment with the way that your body wants to eat. So my body doesn't love gluten or corn. My joints get inflamed. I get super grouchy or turn into like, like a super kind of angry, irritable person. Right. When I eat that way versus when I eat like, I don't know, fish and vegetables, which frankly is boring, but it makes me feel better and I'm a lot more productive. So those would be the two things is what's your relationship to self? Like, how do you treat yourself inside? And also, what is your physical experience like? Are you generally more on the side of like lethargy and apathy and not a lot of energy? Because those are telltale symptoms that your body needs some support. And that support might be physically by seeing a doctor and also probably also means some kind of mental health support around that because if the body and mind is one and the body is not healthy then the mind can also not be healthy so that's where i would start i love all of that and i think it goes hand in hand with the example that you gave earlier about the client with lyme disease with chronic pain causing so much other um, effects in the body and i personally experienced that i had a back injury and I became a different person. Like I, and I could see it, right? I could see it happening, but I was in such pain. Like my patience, all of those kinds of things dissipated. And it also made me so much quicker to have other problems because my body was less resilient. So that's right. Yeah. I think those are great suggestions. And I personal experience says, yep. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining. And listeners, I want to also point you to, Myra's website, somatictherapypartners.com, because you have a free section on your website. Can you tell us about what resources you offer that people could access? Yeah. So one of our first resources is a free three-day trauma-informed yoga course to support more resilience. Yoga and breathwork is really helpful in general for overall mental well-being. And then the other free thing that I have is this ebook that I created, and it's called What's Happening in My Body. And it's basically a holistic guide to learn how to listen to your body for deep healing and personal growth. Because our body does not speak in words and thoughts in the ways that our mind does, one of the ways that we can learn how to become more regulated is by listening to the body better. So earlier when I was talking about, well, how do you feel when you eat fried chicken and cookies, Myra, versus when you eat like fresh fish and grains and a salad. And what happens is if you can learn how to find language for what's happening in your body, you have greater capacity to make informed decisions versus just reacting to things. And so this book gives you a lot of different ways that your body speaks to you from the nervous system perspective, from sensations, from changes in, physio in, in your physiology. It's something I use all the time with my clients to help them increase their awareness of what's happening in their body. And so both of those are free if you go to the website, somatictherapypartners.com, and you just sign up. And listeners, if you're in the car driving right now, and please don't <laughs> write it down while you're driving, we'll put a list of resources in the show notes for you at realeverything.com. 
And also, if you head to patreon.com slash the whole view, you can get all of our shows delivered to your inbox ad free, which is a really great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves. And if you've enjoyed the show, could you leave a review saying so? It costs you nothing except just 30 seconds. It makes a huge difference in my being able to continue to do this work. And don't forget to follow or subscribe in whatever podcast app that you're using. As always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. We'll be back again next week. We are Allie and Erica, certified integrative nutrition health coaches in gut and hormone health and the hosts of the podcast, Courageous Wellness. We are committed to destigmatizing conversations in the wellness space and celebrate the experiences and lessons of our guests in pursuit of physical, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Listen to Courageous Wellness wherever you get your podcasts with fresh episodes every Wednesday.